Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and thanks for joining me as we continue our nightmarish sightseeing tour of North America. Welcome to West Virginia. We're just one state over from where we started, and already the abundant treasure trove of unsettling stories is making it tough to sort through to select just a few worth sharing with you. Like its neighbor to the east, West Virginia is well known for its rich history of hauntings and other supernatural occurrences. While looking into the history of West Virginia, I stumbled across an interesting book. While it's a bit of an older read, released in 1965, folklorist Ruth Ann Music's compilation, The Telltale Lilac Bush and Other West Virginia Ghost Tales, is a treasure trove of bite-sized dark legends, in a fairly similar style to scary stories to tell in the dark. There are 100 stories in this collection, from ghostly revenge, to haunted places, to deadly creatures and they do an interesting, simple job of showcasing the eerie and unsettling side of West Virginia. If you're a buff of horrific history, like I am, it's an easy read I think you'll enjoy. I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out for yourself. On the topic of horror and history, West Virginia is home to one of the more iconic evil entities in America. If you've heard of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, there's a good chance you know exactly who, or what, I'm talking about. In the weeks and months leading up to the collapse of Point Pleasant's Silver Bridge in 1967, where 46 people lost their lives in the icy waters of the Ohio River, a massive winged human-like creature with bright red eyes had racked up more than 100 claimed sightings in the area. The Mothman, as it came to be called, terrified grave diggers in a local cemetery, chased a couple driving through the woods, and was spotted flying between buildings and perched on rooftops. 
After the bridge collapse, though, those sightings died off. That's led some people to theorize a connection between the two. It also led to a pretty bad novel and a pretty okay-ish movie. I have a feeling most of you are pretty well acquainted with the finer details of the Mothman story, so I won't dive into them here. But there's more than just the Mothman that makes West Virginia a cryptozoologist's dream. West Virginia is home to the Snarly Yow, a massive black wolf that can change size at will, materialize out of thin air, and disappear just as quickly. There's the Flatwoods Monster, a floating green reptilian creature said to have emerged from a crashed UFO. The Grafton Monster, whose hulking nine-foot-tall form resembles Bigfoot, but with slick, pale skin. And the deadly white things, bear-sized wolf creatures with goat horns, a sulfurous stench, and a blood-curdling screech. But sometimes, the scariest things that lurk in the dark aren't nearly so exotic. West Virginia also has the distinction of being the location of one of the first men in modern history to hold the label of serial killer. Born Herman Drenth in 1892, Harry Powers, as he became known, wasn't much of a looker. He was stocky, with a broad, round face, small, cold eyes, and a tight-set mouth. But his silver tongue, or writing hand, made up for any shortcoming in the looks department. He certainly had a way with women. Not long after moving to Quiet Dell, West Virginia, Harry met and married Luella Struther, thanks to a Lonely Hearts ad she had placed in a magazine. But Harry wasn't the type to just quietly settle into married life. An abundance of cleverness and a lack of morals are a bad combination, and it wasn't long before Harry had posted a series of his own Lonely Hearts ads under false names aimed at attracting lonely, rich women. The ads, and his job as a vacuum cleaner salesman, weren't all that was occupying his time, either. Harry had decided to build a garage behind his home. But not just any garage. Sure, it would protect his car from the weather. But this garage had another purpose, too. And a basement. After receiving hundreds of responses to his ads, he set his sights on Asta Eicher, a widowed mother of three living in a suburb near Chicago. Using the name Cornelius Pearson, they began by writing to each other and eventually agreed to meet. The two headed out for a short romantic vacation, leaving the kids with a babysitter. A few days later, the babysitter received a letter that Cornelius would be by to pick up the kids, which he did. When the family didn't return, though... It didn't take long for it to become clear that something was terribly wrong, and the police were called to investigate the disappearance of Asta Eicher and her children. As it turned out, the last time any of the family was seen was during an attempt Cornelius had made to have one of the kids cash a check on their mother's account at a local bank. But who was this Cornelius Pearson? There was no one by that name in Clarksburg, West Virginia, where he claimed to be from. Although, based on the description, Cornelius bore a striking resemblance to a local man named Harry Powers. 
Powers was taken into custody, and not long after, Sheriff Wilford B. Grimm obtained a search warrant for Powers' property. Now, I'd like to think that the irony of the lead officer's name being Will B. Grimm wasn't lost on the investigators who arrived at the house that day. But any amusement would be quickly and devastatingly overshadowed by what they discovered there. Beneath the new garage were four secret rooms containing a burned bank book, blood-soaked hair and clothing, and a small bloody footprint of a child. And there, in a relatively fresh trench behind the house, they discovered the decomposing bodies of five victims. Asta Eicher, her three children, and another more recent victim of Power's Lonely Heart Scheme, Dorothy Lemke. It's thought that Harry Powers was responsible for many more deaths, but law enforcement was never able to prove it, and Powers never offered additional confession outside of the five murders. On the morning of March 18, 1932, surrounded by an angry crowd of onlookers, Harry Powers was executed by hanging for his crimes. Well, children of the night, I think that's enough true horror for one evening. Let's move on to some fiction. First up for the evening is a classic tale from our old friend H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, where he lived for most of his life. He achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. He was virtually unknown and published only in pulp magazines before his death, but is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors in our genre. Among his most celebrated tales are The Call of Cthulhu and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, both canonical to the Cthulhu mythos. Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as an author and editor. He saw commercial success increasingly elude him partly because he lacked the confidence and drive to promote himself. He subsisted in progressively strained circumstances in his last years and died in poverty in 1937 at the age of 46. Children of the Night, join me for H.P. Lovecraft's Dagon. I'm writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more, penniless, and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. 
It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due to us as naval prisoners. So liberal, indeed, was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhere south of the equator. Of the longitude, I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid, with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things, which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing, and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Though some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden underneath the unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. The night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, 
but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first despised it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I had not known why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Though my terror ran curious reminiscences of paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the worksmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me and unlike anything I had ever seen in books. 
consisting, for the most part, of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-ridden plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size, were an array of bas-relief whose subjects would have excited the envy of Dore. I think that those things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in water of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished, eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent over the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in San Francisco Hospital, brought thither by the captain of an American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention, of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon, perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease, and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. 
Often, I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever, as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man of war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision and reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likeness on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand! The window! The window! That was H.P. Lovecraft's Dagon, read to you by Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick is the former host of Tales to Terrify. He works supporting assistive technologies for special education students and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. You can find him on his personal page at skk.blue. Always good to hear from you, Stephen. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our next story for the evening comes to us from H.L. Fullerton, who we last heard from on episode 286 with the story The First and Second Offerings. H.L. Fullerton writes fiction, mostly speculative, occasionally about monsters who hide under beds which is sometimes published in places like Lackington's, Daily Science Fiction, Far-Fetched Fables, and Tales to Terrify. You can connect with him on Twitter at ByHLFullerton. Children of the Night, H.L. Fullerton's Disturbing the Huntsman, a Tales to Terrify original. Sometimes, Al wished he was more like his brother Spence. No woman ever expected Spence to clean things. Certainly, Spence had never been gifted a plastic stick and instructed on attaching dusting cloths to it. Being considerate had its drawbacks. Carrie breezed into his, there, bedroom, with a pile of clean sheets. Help me change the bed? Al leaned the floor sweeper against the bureau carefully so it wouldn't scratch or dent the wood. The bedroom furniture was Carrie's, her grandmother's actually, dark, heavy stuff with flowery scrollwork. The headboard detailed a hunting scene. In the foreground, a man with a musket aimed at something out of sight. He wore breeches and a long jacket, reminding Al of a red coat, sans wig. Carrie affectionately called him the Huntsman. In the background, left of center, was a tiny fleeing woman, her belled skirts blending into the landscape of rolling hills and vines, as if the woods were swallowing her whole. Together, Al and Carrie stripped the bed, then remade it. Al tossed the pillows atop the quilt, keeping his eyes averted from the huntsman. Carrie kissed her fingers and pressed them to a wooden cheek. Don't forget under the bed she said, and handed Al the floor sweeper as she left the room. He poked the thing under the bed, but it smacked against the bottom edge of the frame. He bent and poked again. It slid further, barely clearing the bed skirt. Al got down on his hands and knees, his face turned away, and stroked the sweeper across the floor. Under the bureau, he saw the rainbows he'd created in the film of dust with his haphazard sweeping. He remembered, as a child, how his mother always told him and Spence not to move her tchotchkes. Don't disturb the dust, 
she'd say, but they'd been fascinated by the bright, hidden circles underneath her Hummel figurines. Al turned his head, 180 degrees, his eyes so close they couldn't focus properly on the paisley pattern of the bedding. Underneath the bed, guarded by its skirt, the floor should be as clean as the shelf underneath his mother's hummels. He hitched up the bed's skirt. The frame sat a good eight, nine inches above the floor. He shook off a sense of unease. He felt almost voyeurish, as if this were something slightly obscene that he didn't want Carrie to catch him doing, which was silly. He ducked his head and peered beneath the skirt. Dust tickled his nose. The scent, woodsy, reminded him of his grandfather's barn. But instead of horse, there was the accompanying smell of crushed flowers. His eyes guided the sweeper. Furls of dust clung to its sides. Soon, the floor gleamed. Al dropped the skirt and sat back on his heels. He looked over his shoulder, expecting to see Carrie in the doorway, a quizzical expression on her face. He was alone. He reached out and swung the door closed. He lifted the skirt. So much room. He never realized how big, how wide their bed was. As a child, he'd worried about things. Monsters, hiding under his small twin bed, waiting for the lights to go out so they could pull him into the shadows and devour him. There'd hardly been room under that bed. But this bed... In movies, especially horror movies, people always hid under beds. Al had never understood that. Until now. He wanted to crawl under this bed. He'd fit. The clink of dishes reassured him Carrie was busy in the kitchen. Al lay on his back and wiggled under the bed. His nose grazed the two-by-six guarding the box spring. He slid dead center, gazed at the gauzy material and slats above him. Carrie's bed had come with that old-fashioned wire mesh, but he'd insisted on replacing it with sturdy wooden slats, unwilling to have sex on a mattress held up by chicken wire. The bare pine seemed naked against the darker stained wood, an unseasoned interloper. Al's body tingled. The woodsy scent tantalized him. Everything was quiet under here, muffled. Even the light. It dappled through the skirt. The box spring gave his hideout an auric glow. He watched the dust motes dance, felt them pause on his clothes. He grew drowsy, aroused. He was both sinking and floating. He imagined someone lying atop the mattress, unaware of him below. 
His hand slid. Ow! 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 Carrie's voice jerked him awake. The bedroom door opened, and a gust of air rippled the bedskirt. Al glimpsed Carrie's slippers, listened to them slap the floor. She stumbled on the abandoned floor sweeper. A small cry escaped her lips. He drank it in. Its taste heated him. She sat on the bed, and Al felt as if she curled into his lap. He swore he could smell her. His stomach rumbled. She kicked off her slippers. They hit the floor and bounced. To Al, they trembled. He ran his fingers along the pine slat and pretended he was touching Carrie without her realizing it. She mumbled, Where did he go? And triumph surged through him. Her shirt rustled over her head. Her bra snicked open. She stood and stripped off her jeans. She was going to shower, he realized. The marathon of clean was over. How long had he been under here? Suddenly, the absurdity of his situation washed over him. He was behaving like a five-year-old, hiding under a bed to avoid cleaning. If Carrie found him, she'd... Carrie knelt on the floor next to the bed. Al froze. Her hand brushed the material. Her nipple grazed the floor. Her face appeared. Two blue eyes slid over him, as if he weren't there. Then the skirt dropped and she climbed to her feet. At least he dusted before he disappeared, she muttered. Al waited until he heard the shower start before sliding out from under the bed like a mechanic on a dolly. He fled from his apartment as if chased by the huntsman. That night, before going to sleep, Al checked under the bed for monsters. I'm going to buy a present for Julia, Carrie said, shrugging into her coat. The party's this weekend. Al muted the television. Julia was his sister-in-law. He should go. Do you want me to come? No, it'll be quicker if I do it myself. Can you start dinner? Sure. He turned the sound back on. The moment she left, Al snuck into their bedroom and shimmied under the bed. This spot had become his refuge, his secret place. It revived him in ways he didn't understand, as if he'd been deficient in some essential mineral that he hadn't known existed. Though he never slept under the bed, he dreamed of horrible things. The bed smelled less like virgin wood, and more like some animal's den. Above, he was Al. Kind, considerate, loving, attentive. Under, he was different, liberated.
empowered, beastly, more troll than man. When he was young, he'd never imagined what those monsters lurking under his bed looked like. Now he imagined they looked like him. Shadows flickered on the white of the box spring. They coalesced into figures, a puppet show of claws and rage. Everything went red. Al purred. Sometime later, Al wasn't sure how much later, a creaking floorboard snapped him back to awareness. Both hands flew up to press against the framework above him. His fingers landed on cool metal strips. Startled, Al yanked his hands to his chest and blinked his eyes. He turned his head to the side, but it was too dark to see. The sun must have set while he drifted. I was supposed to fix dinner, he thought, but the pad of footsteps towards him captured his attention. He held his breath and waited. The footsteps stopped at the edge of the bed. He sensed a darker blackness where ankles cast shadows. He reached out a hand to lift the bed skirt, hoping some stray light would find its way in. His fingers swatted air. The mattress gave as Carrie climbed into bed. He waited until sleep claimed her, and the room felt lighter, then inched his way to the edge of the bed. Again, his fingers encountered the cool touch of metal. He ran his palm alongside the frame. Metal all the way. This wasn't their bed. Panic scrambled his gut. He scooted from his hiding place. When he touched shaggy carpet, he nearly shrieked. Calm down, calm down. You can figure this out, he told himself and stood upright. Glare from passing headlights, no, from the alarm clock on the nightstand, hurt his eyes. 312 or 512? Too bright to tell. His gaze swept the room. Furniture swelled in all the wrong places. A small trio of windows bordered the ceiling. From this angle, he could see nothing but blue-black sky. His eyes found the bed. The headboard had wrought iron bars, framed in a mission-style prison. Two long bulges slept there, like lumpy columns. His stomach rumbled. He turned away from the bed and towards the door. Hunger tugged him back. He ignored it and reached for the knob. His hand passed through it. He tried again to grab the handle, but couldn't. Was this a dream? It felt so real, despite its impossibilities. Al pressed his hand against the tall dresser nearest him. Solid. He went for the door. His fingers couldn't find it. He could see it, but not touch it. He tried touching other things in the room, moving slowly to avoid tripping over shoes and clothes strewn across the rug. He tried opening another door. Its knob 
turned in his hand. A closet. The blackness inside recognized him. He shut the door on it. Why couldn't he leave this bedroom? He felt tethered here. No. He felt tethered to the bed. Al stood over the sleeping couple. An unsettled feeling bloomed in his chest, drowning out the restless hunger. What if he had touched that ankle earlier, grabbed it and pulled? What would have happened? What if he touched them now? The lump on the left twitched in its sleep. It, she, moaned. Al could smell her nightmare. Like popcorn, it played with his senses. For a second, Al considered waking her, seeing the fear spread across her face. His stomach tightened in anticipation, then cramped in disgust. What was he doing? He needed to get home before Carrie called the cops, or these people woke and dialed 911. Al stepped back and lowered himself to his knees. A glint on the nightstand stopped him. Proof, he thought, and picked up the object. It felt like an empty money clip. He stuck it in his pocket and wriggled under the bed. It was much closer to the floor than his, and he had to turn his head and suck in his stomach. He worried about getting stuck. Cold metal tickled his ear. Then he was under. He stared at the box spring. It was nicer than his and Carrie's. The gauze tighter. He waited. Nothing happened. He squeezed his eyes shut. He clicked his heels together, thinking that might help. He was still in the stranger's apartment. What if he never found his way home? He took a deep breath. Above him, a body rolled. The room got heavy. Someone was waking. Two someones. They murmured in an unfamiliar rhythm, the words foreign, but the sounds unmistakable. Al closed his eyes, the better to imagine with. Sound rushed his ears, dust peppered his face. Light brushed his eyelids. His hands sought the floor to steady himself. No carpet, just the smooth slide of bamboo. Eyes opened. He was home. By the shadows on the floor, it was only late afternoon. Al crawled out. He wondered if Carrie would want sex tonight. Both his selves did. He looked back at the bed. The huntsman's musket pointed at him. I am the unseen threat, he thought, and ran his tongue over his teeth. How sharp they were. He went to fix dinner. Al's new favorite game was things that go bump in the night. He played the part of the thing.
He lay under strangers' beds and listened to their nightmares. Sometimes he helped them along. Tonight, Carrie was having a girls' night. Why don't you go do something? You've been cranky lately. Not your usual charming self. Al gave her a tired smile, told her he'd go down to the bar and watch the game with the guys. Instead, he crawled under the bed and went traveling. He never picked his destinations. They seemed to pick him. He wasn't sure how. He just closed his eyes and poof, different bed. This time, he opened his eyes and felt exposed. No comforter hanging down to shield him. The bed was high, plenty of clearance, no danger of a bumped head. The room was much brighter than his usual haunts. He glanced around and thought of his niece Minerva. He was in a kid's room, he realized, and immediately tried to leave. But he couldn't. Above him, the kid started to whimper. He was under a crib. There was a baby above him. Al didn't like this at all. And if that baby kept crying, some parent would come in and catch him under the crib. He scampered out, loomed over the baby, casting it in shadows. There, there, he murmured, rearranging the blankets and looking for a pacifier to plop in its mouth. Everything's okay. Go back to sleep. Hush, hush. Rockabye, treetops. He found the pacifier and shoved it into the baby's mouth. Baby started suckling and settled down. Good baby. Good, good baby, Al whispered and sunk to his knees. Normally he took a souvenir, but he didn't want anything to remind him of this trip. Uncle Al, Uncle Al! Minerva threw her six-year-old self at him. Al picked her up and twirled around till she squealed. Who's my girl, he said. Carrie pinched his side. Minerva raised her hand. I am, I am. He laughed, put her down, and shook hands with Spence. He kissed his sister-in-law on the cheek. Happy birthday, Julia. Carrie got you an awesome present. Minerva dragged at his hand. Come play, Uncle Al. Minnie, sweetie, let Uncle Al catch a breath. To Al, Julia said, She's been waiting for you all morning. That's because I'm worth waiting for. Carrie and Julia shared an eye roll. Al let Minerva lead him into the playroom, bypassing the great room where the adults congregated. They built palaces and read storybooks and colored. Al was working on a mermaid's tail when Minerva threw down her orange crayon and said, Let's play hide-and-seek. She jumped to her feet and smoothed down her dress. Bits of crayon stuck to its skirt. I don't know, Min. I haven't finished my picture yet. Please, Uncle Al, please, 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 please. Maybe another day. Why can't we play now? 
because it's not a good idea. Al knew this conversation was slipping away from him. Women, even six-year-olds, could talk circles around him. Do you want to play with Carrie? Is she why you won't play hide-and-seek? Um, are you going to marry her and have babies? I don't like babies. Al was hiding in the playroom to avoid discussions like this one. Let's play hide-and-seek, but no hiding in the kitchen or the great room. Yay, I hide first. Okay, you have to count to 100. I'll count to 10. You have to count to 40, because that's how old Mommy is, and you're a grown-up. I count to 10. Okay, he said. Eyes closed. Al closed his eyes. I'm counting. One, two. He heard Minerva's footsteps race down the hall. A door slammed. He finished coloring his picture, then went to find her. He took his time about it. When it was his turn to hide, he stayed in the playroom. After a few rounds, Minerva pushed him into the hall and shut the door on him. You hide out there, she said. One, two, three, four. Al clomped down the hallway, hoping she'd remember her promise not to disturb the partygoers. Last time, Mid had hid in her parents' room behind the laundry basket. He was going to pick the same spot. But then he walked in and saw the bed. Really saw it, not just passed by it to find Min. A four-poster king, no bed skirt. He wondered if Julia made Spence dust under it. He thought of the souvenirs he'd taken from places he'd visited. He worried one day little trinkets wouldn't be enough to feed him. He looked around his brother's bedroom, imagining what he'd take if Spence were a stranger he was visiting. Al got on his hands and knees, peered under the bed. He'd been under other people's and once a crib, but he'd always traveled from his own bed. Was there something special about Carrie's, or could he disappear from any bed? He heard Minerva coming down the hallway, calling out in a sing-song voice. He hurried to his feet and dashed to the hamper, ducked behind it. The door burst open, and Minerva ran in. I see you, I see you. You got me, he said. Three turns later, he hid under his brother's bed. He told himself he wouldn't travel, wouldn't close his eyes, wouldn't turn into a monster. He heard Minerva wander up and down the hall, looking for him. Time passed. Her calls became more worried than teasing. The part of him that was Al knew he should slide out and let her find him, but he didn't. He was changing. Found you, Uncle Al. I found you. You're it. Al turned his head to see Minerva crouched by the side of the bed. Under here, he said, eyes shining like flashlights. I'm not your Uncle Al. It was the first time he'd confessed his secret. Her eyes and mouth rounded. She scrambled back from him. He reached for her, half rolled, 
and smacked his forehead on a slat. Shit, he thought. He hadn't meant to scare her, although if he'd caught hold of her, what might he have done? He needed to stop this, whatever this was. He dragged himself out and followed Minerva, his heart thudded in time to her pounding footsteps. She ran into the great room, squealing, Uncle Al's a monster! Uncle Al's a monster! He entered the room, arms raised upwards and hands curved like claws. He made roaring sounds and walked, stiff-legged. Everyone laughed. Brave now, standing in front of her father, Min said, I'm a clever goddess and I slay you. Al clutched his stomach and fell to the floor. The monster was dead. Min clapped. Now I play the monster and you chase me, she said. The phone woke them. Carrie answered it. Al looked at the clock. 2 a.m. Carrie said, Spence, what's wrong? Al set up and grabbed the phone. It's me, he said. What did you tell her? What did you do? His brother yelled. I don't know what you're talking about. Minerva, what did you... She says you showed her. She says she was playing monster like Uncle Al. My God, Al, she's covered in blood. Spence started crying. I didn't... She says she couldn't find you. She says she waited at the crib, but you weren't there and she got hungry. Carrie crowded close to him on the bed. What is it? Al turned towards her, his jaw slack. He caught sight of the huntsman, gun raised, ready to fire. Al went cold, thinking of all the other bedrooms he'd visited, all the fear that had called to him, of that sweet, fussy baby whose nightmare he chased away. Oh, God. Where's Minerva now? She crawled under our bed and won't come out. Spence? Al felt something lock around his heart. Look under the bed. Tell me what you see. I'm too old to crawl around on my knees, Spence said. Minerva, come out. In the background, Julia cried out. She bit me. A tiny voice piped. Under here, I'm not Minerva. Spence, drag her out. Drag her out now. Before she traveled. Before things got worse. She's not here. I don't see her. Al, what's happening? We disturbed the dust. Al whispered. What are you talking about? What does that mean? His brother screamed over the phone. Where's my baby? Al didn't have the words to tell him. Minerva wasn't his baby anymore. She was a bringer of nightmares. She'd turned into her beast. Al rolled out of bed and onto the floor. I'll find her, Spence. I promise I'll find her. Maybe, Al thought as he raised the bed skirt. Carrie tugging at his arm. I was never the monster. Maybe, he thought, I've been a huntsman in waiting.
That was H.L. Fullerton's Disturbing the Huntsman, as read by Tales to Terrify's own Scott Silk. Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. In his spare time, his interests include reading, writing, urban gardening, tattoos, cartoons, seeing how long he can let his hair grow, and not wearing pants. Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his girlfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can sometimes be found babbling about speculative fiction and his other interests on Twitter at ScottSilk13. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show was produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.